Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associated Newsletter Audiocast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is volume 12, issue number 49. This happens to correspond with the week of November 21st, 2022. This week, we're going to talk about COVID, some of the quick hits, some of the statistics around new variants. We're going to get into a deeper topic around the macronutrient protein, and then there is the recipe of the week. Free thoughts. Like the human body, all systems in general are geared for survival and procreation. It is our individual and collective behaviors that stymie this reality. Today's podcast is a fascinating tour through the neuroscience of why we eat the way we do and how our brains are hijacked by the food types. You can get to listen to that podcast with Dr. Stefan Guianet, which is number 34 in the podcast list. We get into that deep discussion and also look at childhood obesity as it relates to that. Okay, this is coronavirus update number 75. Omicron U.S. strains as of the November 19th date show that we are at a place where the predominant strain has now shifted to BQ.1, which is 26%. BQ.1.1 and BA.5 share 24%. BF.7 is 8% and then negligible down to BN.1 and BA.4.6. So, now we see that the Omicron BA.5 has lost most of the ground it had at 90%, all the way down to 25%. The BF.7.Q1 and Q1.1 are all very interesting as they continue to outcompete BA.5, which means they have all these new mutations in the spike and nucleotide regions of the RNA genome of the virus that allows them to evade immunity. Very clear now that a lot of pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical antibodies that were pooled and used to make drugs are now no longer useful. Vaccine is only useful in the sense that it does reduce risk of death and morbidity, but very limited benefit to your own personal uh, ability to not get sick, roughly two months of protection against being actually uh, symptomatic from the illness and little to no benefit in transmission that we can see. None of the variants of concern to date and counting are showing any increase in disease morbidity. So quick hit number one. In a well-written article in Time Magazine, we see a thorough analysis of the new circulating variants. Scientists took sera of a blood from 88 people in five different groups as listed below and exposed it to four variants in the lab. Here's what they found. The first group, fully vaccinated and once boosted people, they had three shots of the original mRNA vaccines, had 37 and 55-fold lower neutralization against BQ.1 and BQ.1.1, respectively, than they did against the original SARS-CoV-2 virus, and about a 70-fold lower neutralization against these new variants coming out, XBB and XBB.1. Group two was fully vaccinated and twice boosted, so a total of four shots of the mRNA vaccine, had a 43 and 81-fold lower neutralization to BQ.1 and BQ.1.1, and 145-fold lower neutralization against XBB and XBB.1. The fully vaccinated group three and twice boosted people, so three shots of the original vaccine plus one Omicron booster, had 24 and 41-fold lower neutralization against BQ1 and BQ.1.1, and a 66 to 85-fold lower neutralization against XBB and XBB.1. 
And then a fourth group, fully vaccinated people who received the original booster and who had been infected with BA.2 had 20 to 29-fold lower neutralization against BQ.1 and BQ.1.1, respectively, than they did against the original virus and 103-fold lower neutralization against XBB. And finally, the fifth group, fully vaccinated people who received the original booster and who had been infected with BA.4 or BA.5 had a 13 to 31-fold lower neutralization against BQ.1 and BQ.1.1, an 86% lower neutralization against XBB. This comes to us from Park et al., 2020, in Time Magazine. So what does that all mean? The take-home is simple. All of the new Omicron-based variants are extremely infectious, but not really dangerous anymore to immunocompetent and healthy people. They are evading prior immunity, as well as all vaccines to varying degrees. Morbidity remains very low. The current bivalent vaccines are not showing any significant improvement over the ancestral vaccine against death and morbidity. Death remains almost zero for all healthy, previously infected or vaccinated individuals. This is likely the new norm from here on out. Number two, Catherine Eban has written a new thorough piece on the pandemic origins, and it is absolutely worth your time to read. It is long, but it is thorough. From the article, she writes, quote, Week after week, scientists from those branches chronicled their party-building exploits and report unloaded to the WIV's website. These dispatches intended for watchful higher-ups generally consist of upbeat recitations or of recruitment efforts and meeting summaries that emphasize the fulfillment of Beijing's political goals. The headlines and initial paragraphs seem completely innocuous, Reed says. If you didn't take a close look, you'd probably think that there's nothing in here, he says. But much like imperfect propaganda, the dispatches hold glimmers of real life. Tension among colleagues, abuse from bosses, reprimands from party superiors. The grievances are often couched in a narrative of heroism, a focus on problems overcome and challenges met against daunting odds. As Reed burrowed into the party branch dispatches, he became riveted by the unfolding picture. They described intense pressure to produce scientific breakthroughs that would elevate China's standing on the world stage, despite a dire lack of essential resources. Even at the BSL-4 lab, they repeatedly lamented the problem of the three no's. No equipment, no technology standards, no design and construction teams, and no experience operating or maintaining a lab of this caliber, end quote. Her article goes on to state, Quote, and then in the fall of 2019, the dispatches took a darker turn. They referenced inhumane working conditions and hidden safety dangers. On November 12 of that year, a dispatch by party branch members at the BSL-4 laboratory appeared to reference a biosecurity breach. Once you have opened the stored test tubes, it is just as if you had opened Pandora's box. These viruses come without a shadow and leave without a trace. Although we have various preventative and protective measures, it is nevertheless necessary for lab personnel to operate very cautiously to avoid operational errors that give rise to dangers. Every time this has happened, the members of the Zhenjiang Lab, BSL-4 party branch, have always run to the front line, and they have taken real action to mobilize and motivate other research personnel. Reed studied the words intently. Was this a reference to past accidents? an admission of an ongoing crisis, a general recognition of hazardous practices, or above all, reading between the lines. Reed concluded that almost saying they know Beijing is about to come down and scream at them, and that, in fact, is exactly what happened next. According to the meeting summary uploaded nine days later, 
the dozens of pages of WIV dispatches that read unearthed, particularly those from November 2019, helped shape the conclusion of the interim report. Working out of a small windowless room in the Hart building they had nicknamed the Bat Cave, the researchers cross-referenced Reed's analysis with myriad clues. From procurement notices and patent filings to records of ongoing scientific experiments at the WIV, as their investigation grew, so did a timeline that unfolded across the walls like a giant checkerboard. Without the cooperation of China's government, we can't know exactly what did or didn't happen at the Wuhan Institute of Virology or what precise set of circumstances unleashed SARS-CoV-2. But the dispatches that Reed unearthed were, when overlaid with additional evidence the Senate team compiled, point to catastrophe in the making, political pressure to excel, inadequate resources to safeguard risky work, and an effort to skirt blame once crisis hit. As Reed sees it, the international community must continue to demand answers. If you just throw your hands in the air and say, we'll never know because it's China and just move on, if you take that defeatist approach to things, you can't prepare yourself to present something like this happening in the future, end quote. Again, Catherine Eban, article in Politico. It goes on for pages to chronicle what really happened or what we believe really happened in China. That makes the case for a possible lab leak of which I have been saying since the beginning makes the most plausible sense. So fascinating. Nothing more we can do with it. Can't put Pandora back in the box, but the reality is it's still good to know, like they said, we need to have the ability to prepare for something like this in the future. Countries messing with vir viruses, gene editing them, gain-of-function mutation research on them without the appropriate safeguards is very scary. And it even makes me more nervous to know the United States and University of North Carolina was somewhat involved in this process. And there was funding from the United States. Very scary. I am not political. Do not want to have a political bend to this, just sort of reporting the facts as they are and thinking about it outside the box. Number three, quote, although microbial populations in the gut microbiome are associated with COVID-19 severity, a causal impact on patient health has not been established. Here we provide evidence the gut microbiome dysbiosis is associated with translocation of bacteria into the blood during COVID-19, causing life-threatening secondary infections. We first demonstrate SARS-CoV-2 infection induces gut microbiome dysbiosis in mice, which correlate with alterations to panath cells and goblet cells in the intestinal lining and markers of barrier impermeability. Samples collected from 96 COVID-19 patients at two different clinical sites also revealed substantial gut microbiome dysbiosis, including blooms of opportunistic pathogenic bacterial genera known to include antimicrobial-resistant species. Analysis of blood culture results testing for secondary microbial bloodstream infections with paired microbiome data indicates that bacteria may translocate from the gut into the systemic circulation of COVID-19 patients. These results are consistent with a direct role for gut microbiome dysbiosis in enabling dangerous secondary infections during COVID-19, end quote. That comes from Bernard Raichon, spelled B-E-R-N-A-R-D hyphen R-A-I-C-H-O-N et al. 2022. So why does this matter? It is well known that human lifestyle decisions regarding food, chemical exposure, exercise, volume, stress, and much more dictate the health of the intestinal microbiome. The fact that individuals with poor COVID outcomes have dysbiosis, poor intestinal microbe diversity, is well known. 
These issues are now shedding further light on the fact that these bacteria are leaking into the bloodstream, triggering immune and inflammatory reactions that significantly worsen disease, as we have seen in multi-inflammatory syndrome in children. The take-home remains the same. Spending time caring for your intestinal microbiome is so important, and then those bugs will care for you. Number four, a good article in The Atlantic Magazine about the validity of hand washing as a mitigation measure against respiratory viral illnesses. The take-home is as expected, as we noted, play on the COVID pandemic. 20-second soapy hand washing is useful to prevent most infectious transmission except for virus respiratory diseases that are aerosolized and in microparticles like we saw with COVID and things like RSV. Masks and avoidance are the only real useful mitigation measure against these viruses. Of course, vaccinations are not a mitigation measure per se. They are more of a uh, immune boosting therapy, but mitigation measures are important. The hand washing will always be necessary to just keep your hands clean from pathogens in general, but viral illnesses are now predominantly related to aerosolized transmission. This comes to us from Stern J, 2022. Let's look at non-COVID hits. Number five, this one's interesting. Quote, low skeletal muscle mass is associated with cognitive impairment and dementia in older adults. This review describes the possible underlying pathophysiologic mechanisms, systemic inflammation, insulin metabolism, protein metabolism, mitochondrial function. We hypothesize that a central tenet in the pathophysiology is a dysfunctional myokine secretion consequent to minimal physical activity. Myokines, such as fibronectin type 3 domain containing 5, arisen, and cathepsin B, are released by physically active muscle and cross the blood-brain barrier. These myokines upregulate local neurotrophin expression, such as brain-derived neurotrophic factor in the brain microenvironment. BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, exerts anti-inflammatory effects that may be responsible for neuroprotection. Altered myokine secretion due to physical inactivity exacerbates inflammation and impairs muscle glucose. Metabolism potentially affecting the transport of insulin across the blood-brain barrier. Our working model also suggests other underlying mechanisms. A negative systemic protein balance, commonly observed in older adults, contributes to low skeletal muscle mass and may also reflect efficient protein metabolism in brain tissues. As a result of age-related loss in skeletal muscle mass, decrease in the abundance of mitochondria and detriments in their function lead to decrease in tissue oxidative capacity. Dysfunctional mitochondria in skeletal muscle and brain result in the excessive production of reactive oxygen species, which drive tissue oxidative stress and further perpetuates the dysfunction in mitochondria. Both oxidative stress and accumulation of mitochondrial DNA mutations due to aging drive cellular senescence. A targeted approach in the pathophysiology of low muscle mass and cognition could be to restore myokine balance by physical activity, end quote. That comes just from Udbier, S, 2022, O-U-D-B-I-E-R. This research, in my mind, is critical to our long-term health. Activity is so important on so many levels, but in this case, we are able to generate more brain-derived neurotrophic factor and other enhanced metabolic properties of life for reduced inflammation and increased longevity of the healthful state, especially in the brain. Everything is tied together in neuroimmunometabolic pathways. To be sedentary, poorly nourished, and toxic is to die younger with less functional ability of every system in the body. To take home point here is to get your children moving often and with vigor. 
that data has a long-term feed-forward effect on keeping the brain clean and energetic in positive ways. Couple this data to the sleep data on glymphatics and sleep-induced cleaning, and you see a variable picture of preserving brain health. There's a diagram in the newsletter that you can go look at that sort of gives you a pictorial of what we're talking about. I'm going to go deeper into this in an upcoming newsletter because this really needs to be taken down to a much more granular level. And then there's also a couple articles coming out in Nature Communication looking at brain disorders related to the intestinal microbiome and specific species that are in the mouth that are translocating down into the gut. I think this is all tied together. I think exercise, diet, everything leads to this web of misinformation heading up to the brain which causes our diseases. Number six, new research from MIT, the Massachusetts, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, notes that the Earth has corrected its atmosphere multiple times over its existence. Through a process called silicate weathering, whereby the silicate rock traps carbon dioxide, reducing the overall atmospheric carbon dioxide. This is the current scientific explanation of how the Earth has been suitable for mammalian life for so long. From the article, Quote, the global carbon cycle exerts substantial control over Earth's climate through its influence on the atmospheric CO2 concentration. CO2 enters the ocean atmosphere system due to the solid Earth degassing and organic carbon oxidation and is removed through the chemical weathering of carbonate and silicate rocks and subsequent carbonate burial in ocean sediments, as well as organic carbon burial. Weathering rates increase with temperature and CO2 concentration. This is hypothesized to lead to long-term stabilizing feedback in which increases in surface temperatures are countered by drawdown of CO2 and vice versa. This feedback can help explain the puzzle of Earth's enduring habituality, even as stellar luminosity has changed significantly. It also justifies the useful quote-unquote steady-state assumption in the study of past carbon cycle change and is an important foundation for the habitual zone concept of this exoplanet research, end quote. This comes just from Arnscheidt et al. 2022, A-R-N-S-C-H-E-I-D-T et al. I bring this up in the context of human behavior and how it affects our environment. We do not treat our planet well as witnessed by plastic pollution in the ocean, air pollution in major cities and industrial regions, Mississippi River Delta fertilizer damage, and on and on. The COVID lockdown proved one thing very quickly. When humans stop acting, Mother Nature takes back over as witnessed by animals returning to old habitats that they had pushed out of, water and air becoming significantly cleaner, and on and on. I think that the same will occur with global warming. Regardless of if we change to prevent it from worsening at our hand in the short term, the Earth is primed to fix it over 100,000 years, as it has been dealing with volcanic eruptions and other massive carbon releases that could have made the planet unlivable. The Earth, doesn't think, the Earth does not think in our small terms of years. Like the human body, all systems in general are geared for survival and creation. It is our individual and collective behaviors that stymie this reality. Now, this is not to say that we shouldn't be doing everything we can to prevent our ability to induce global warming, which we should. But the reality is, Earth doesn't care. We'll die out. They'll fix everything and make it habitual again for humans or other species. It's up to us to do the best thing we can for ourselves. Just fascinating. Okay, protein, section two. Protein is critically important on a per day volume, not a percentage of daily caloric intake. Think of protein more as a vitamin or basic mineral 
for function. The current reality for most teenagers to elderly folks is to get 30 to 60 grams per serving three times per day to equal 1.2 to 2 grams per kilo or 0.75 to 1 gram per pound. This is the basic requirement for active protein synthesis and all the downstream metabolic effects that follow. Remember that the protein that we intake is the base building block for DNA, RNA, all proteins as enzymes, and so much more. To be protein deficient or insufficient is a mess of grand proportions. For pre-pregnant and pregnant women, this is also critically important as inadequate protein will stunt the newborn's muscle synthesis, and that is set for life. The child could end up with low muscle volume, which then leads to impaired thermogenesis, glucose homeostasis, and risk for cognitive decline with age. There's a dearth of good quality data here, but two grams per kilo of body weight makes the most sense. The type of protein is also important. Animal-based proteins have all the essential amino acids for growth, whereby plant-based does not. Plant protein has absorption roughly of 60 to 70% of listed mass weight based on fiber, phytates, and other reasons. Thus, if you choose to consume only plants, which is fine, be sure to add 30% more mass of protein for the equivalent outcome. I hope you can stay tuned because in an upcoming amazing discussion with Dr. Don Lehman, we dive deep into this topic. It'll be a, a podcast released in about four weeks. Section three, Warm Spinach Salad by Alton Brown. There's a link in the newsletter. Nicole, my wife, recently made, recently made a version of this recipe, but she added toasted sunflower seeds and walnuts. She also used ghee instead of bacon fat. I added red bell pepper chunks and tomatoes to mine. There are so many permutations to make here to be satisfied. I didn't put mushrooms on mine, but if I did, I would fry them with a red onion and sprinkle them on. But warm spinach salad is a great addition to the daily repertoire of food intake at your dinner table or lunch table. Song of the Week, Sea of Love by the Honey Drippers. Give it a listen. Old song, group run by Robert Plant, the former lead singer of Led Zeppelin. And that's it for this week. So I hope you had a great time listening. This was uh, Volume 12, Issue 49, November 21, 2022. And as always, hug those kids. The disclaimer, the information provided in this audio cast newsletter is for educational informational purposes only and is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your for your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.